So I wanted to start off this morning by telling you guys uh, about a little story, something that happened a few months ago. Um, I, 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 many of you guys know that I got a, a serious knee surgery. It was my third knee surgery. Um, I got it around this time last year. And um, when you get a really bad knee surgery like that, um, one of the things that really throws you off is even after you heal from your knee surgery, your, your leg just becomes emaciated. Right? It just your muscles atrophy and all of a sudden it was like my left leg was like twice as big as my right leg and my wife was making fun of me so I figured I needed to do something about this. All right? And uh, the doctor said, you know, uh, physical therapy is really expensive. Uh, it, you know, it's not covered in your current plan. So he's like, I just recommend that you just get a gym membership and just do a few simple exercises to restore um, the strength in your leg. I said, okay, cool. So I got, for the first time in my life, I got a gym membership, okay? And I went into the gym and I signed up and I was like super naive because they, they said, oh, well, we want to we wanna give a tour. We want to show you how this thing goes on. And I said, okay, so I signed up for that. They're like, when do you want to do that? I'm like, how about now? They're like, wow, you're eager. I'm like, I thought you just said I needed it. <laughs> so I'm like following them around the gym. And then the guy takes me back to his office and I realized when he takes me back to his office that he's trying to sell me physical therapy. I mean, not, not physical therapy, um, personal training. Physical therapy would make more sense. Maybe personal training makes sense too. You guys are like, that guy's flabby, man. Get him, get him. <laughs> so they're trying to sell me personal training. And, um, and he's asking me all these questions to try to incite that desire. Like, how do you want to look to your wife? And, you know, you got a special occasion coming up and stuff like this. And, uh, and so then he asked me this question. I could tell he was bringing me through his spiel. He asked me this question. Um, um, on a scale of 1 to 10, how serious are you about what you've come here to do? And I said, I, my doctor told me to come here. So I don't know, I'm like maybe like a 6 or a 7. Like, I, I'm going to come here and like work out my leg, I, you know. Um, and, uh, and he just looks at me. And he just goes, what's it going to take to make you a 10? <laughs> and uh, I wasn't trying to be rude, but just like my immediate knee-jerk reaction to him was, I just was confused and I said, why do you want me to be a 10? <laughs> I, said, I said, I got a lot of like important things in my life that I don't even have enough time for as it is. Like I need to spend more time with my wife. I got a church I'm trying to care for. I haven't spent enough time with my kids even this week. Like I got things to do, like important things. And like, that would be crazy. And uh, what I didn't realize as I looked at this sad look come on this guy's face, <laughs> what I hadn't fully realized is that an awkward moment was created. Because here I am sitting in the room of this like beefed up hulky muscle guy with like veins popping out of his neck and like perfectly chiseled and like manicured physical appearance. And I was like, oh, whoops. <laughs> I didn't mean to offend, right? Because for this guy, he was serious about it. I mean, he was a 10 out of 10, right? And um, this awkward realization set in. Um, and I, I, was, I was really interested because this guy was trying to sell me personal training. And I was reflecting on it afterwards. I was like, there was kind of a clash of worldviews that happened, like unexpectedly. Now, don't get me wrong. Like, I'd love to be in better shape. And I'm sure this guy could teach me plenty about how to do that. But working out will never be a 10 out of 10 for me. 
Like, that will never be a level 10 priority for Taylor Brodo. <laughs> Take that to the bank. <laughs> and, uh, you know, in 1 Timothy 4.8, the Apostle Paul even says this about exercise. He says, for while bodily training is of some value, in other words, it's not a complete waste of time. There are plenty of things that we could do that would be a complete waste of time. But bodily training is of some value. But he goes on to say, while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. For it holds a promise in this life and also for the life to come. So I think this is this really clear, helpful contrast that Paul makes because there are, you know, both these things are good things. But oftentimes our struggle is not kind of like whether what we're going to do has some kind of goodness or some kind of good quality to it. It's like distinguishing the good from the better or the better from the best in terms of what our devotion is, in terms of how we're using our time. But the reason why Paul says this is because one is clearly temporary and the other is eternal. One has a material benefit, the other has a spiritual benefit. One deals with externals, like body image, the way that you look, and, and also the way that you feel. And it's nice to feel good and healthy, but the other deals with internals, the kind of virtues that God wants to see at work and alive in all of his people. So biceps, beef, baloney. <laughs> you know, we all clearly understand this idea of being devoted to something. The way somebody might be devoted to a career, staying up late and rising early and, and getting ahead on work and pouring out the best of our creative energies for some task that's been given to us. Um, the way somebody might be devoted to a sport, you know, spending hours practicing, conditioning, sculpting their bodies in the gym, driving to and from practices. If you have young kids, you might be like, my goodness, like... In order to keep my kid devoted to this sport, how much of my week has to be wrapped up in this? Look, we all know what true devotion looks like. But the question is, what would it mean to truly devote yourself to the things of God? What would that look like? Turn with me, if you would, to Acts 2, 42-47. This passage begins with this um, really intriguing phrase says, and they devoted themselves. And then it starts to list some of the things that this early church devoted themselves to. So this passage can teach us what it means to truly devote ourselves to the things of God. And now Acts 2, 42-47 is just one of my favorite passages. Um, those who spent a lot of years around me know that I return to this. It's just critical because this is the earliest window we get into the, into the Christian church. I mean, the Holy Spirit just fell on the apostles and, and some of those that were gathered in Jerusalem. Peter preaches the gospel. It cuts people to the heart. They say, what should we do? You know, they're, they're convicted by the word. And, you know, Peter tells them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. Thousands of people are baptized. And then they form this early Christian community. And if you guys want to know what this sort of, like, pristine, like, before it was watered down, you know, before things, you know, started to get a little wonky, as they've done at many points throughout church history, if you want to know what the early church was like, we see it in this passage. And it's a really, really beautiful, really, really inspiring picture. And um, 
I've probably preached or taught on this passage dozens of times. And I've done a bunch of research on this and on this part in the book of Acts. Um, and this morning I want to do something different. I just gave sort of a little, little introduction to the passage. And at the end I want to share a few specific thoughts about um, how we might apply this as a community. But what I want to do in the middle here, I'm just going to read the passage aloud and I'm going to say a prayer. And I want you guys to have it open. It's on page um, 911 in your Pew Bible. And um, I just want you to pass your eyes over it, kind of marinate in this passage a little bit together. And I want to ask, what are the things in this passage that strike you afresh? What are you curious about in this passage? What challenges, uh, what, what is it that challenges you about the way that you live? How is it speaking to you? And what I thought is, I could ask that question, I could float some questions, and um, as there are things that you put your finger on or you have questions about or whatever, I'll just um, sort of elaborate a little bit on that extemporaneously, all right? So we're going to do this one. All right, let me read out this scripture again. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending to the temple together, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who are being saved. Father, I pray that you would speak to us as a group and speak to individual hearts. Lord, whether you want to speak a word of generosity, calling somebody to generosity, calling somebody to prayer, calling this community to look more like what you intended. Holy Spirit, we just pray that you be among us and be speaking to us through our, our meditation of this passage on, on this passage aloud. In Jesus' name, amen. So this isn't what we normally do in church on Sunday, but there's going to be a little bit of interaction here. So what is it in this passage that's striking you afresh? What are you curious about? What would you like to hear a little bit more on? possessions, it says, um, 45, selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. Now, it doesn't say that they sold all their possessions, but there does seem to be something going on here which is similar to something that Jesus, something that John the Baptist was saying earlier, you know, those who have two cloaks, give one of them away, right? You know, don't just sort of accrue and acquire all this sort of stuff, that there's some sort of contradiction of us amassing all kinds of goods, and then there being brothers and sisters who are in need. And I think that's especially convicting when we just kind of think about um, where many of our brothers and sisters in Christ are at around the world today. That we need to be careful that we're not so big on like accruing and acquiring, and meanwhile, you know, 
Uh, some of our brothers and sisters are living in shacks and have no basic health care or anything like that. And we need to kind of figure out how can we, in the Western world, who are connected to such wealth, who are connected to such privilege, um, be a blessing to them. Sometimes it's nice to be able to have a car to drive to work, you know. Sometimes it's nice to have some couches and you can invite people, you know, into your house to read the word, you know. Um, and, and even in the, in the church in the book of Acts, oftentimes the house churches um, were led by people who had a little bit more means. You know, we see in Acts 16, there's a house church led by um, a woman named Lydia, who's a dealer in purple cloth. That's a really expensive kind of cloth. So she was this first century woman entrepreneur. Some of you guys are already feeling empowered and ready to crank up the Beyonce. I mean, <laughs> um, maybe. <laughs> but uh, no, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, a cool, it's a cool thing. And she's hosting this, this early church in her house. And so that's her way of sort of using her possessions um, in a generous way for the whole community. And that actually ended up being a pattern because we have to remember that the churches, that the early Christian church, I mean, they didn't have buildings for 300 years. And so they relied upon people who had a little bit of living room space in order to gather uh, together as the body of Christ. Yeah. Talk about the prayers. Yeah, the prayers. Did you guys notice that? Um, there's four things it says in verse 42 that they devoted themselves to. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching um, and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Notice that it says the prayers. And that, that really comes from the Greek. Um, and um, what most people think is going on here is that um, this is a way that the Jewish people talked about their commitment to gather together for liturgical prayer three times a day. So they would gather together on the third hour, on the sixth hour, on the ninth hour. That is the third hour from dawn, so 9 a.m. And then 12 noon, and then 3 p.m. In fact, if you don't believe me, uh, let your eyes pass down to chapter 3, verse 1, and we see the apostle Peter and John. It says, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. I mean, these, these are the first Christians, and they're still culturally Jewish, you know? And so they're going to the temple at the hour of prayer, uh, at the ninth hour. And so they seem to still be kind of keeping these regular patterns of prayer that they had in their Jewish life. And that's actually something that we see kind of um, continuing on in the early Christian monastic tradition. You know, um, uh, people like Benedict, um, St. Benedict, who actually helped shape a lot of the thinking and liturgy and prayer practices that influenced the Anglican Book of Common Prayer. And there's still um, Christians today who gather together three times a day for prayer, or five times, and in some cases, seven times a day for prayer. Um, so we see this regular devotion, and I think one of the reasons why that should feel significant to us as a liturgical church is sometimes it can kind of feel like, you know, the early believers, like, they really loved Jesus, so they only prayed extemporaneously from their heart, as if you can't really love Jesus by praying the liturgy. Right? I mean, the ancient Israelites prayed the Psalms all the time. And so, yes, the early church did pray extemporaneously from their heart, but they also, they also devoted themselves to a liturgical set pattern of prayer. And that's what we do here on Sunday morning. That's why we make space for kind of free prayers, prayers that are just kind of arising from our, our situation as a community, but we also um, devote ourselves to set liturgical prayers. That's a very ancient Christian practice, yeah. Yeah, what was the content of their prayers? So they, they have patterns. 
You know, um, that's a good question. Um, I know some of the, the old Hebrew liturgies, and some of it actually pass into some of the Christian liturgies. Some of you guys might have heard a prayer that people utter before dinner time. We thank you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, for giving us bread from the earth. You know, there was these, there was these patterns. Um, there's a lot of uh, lines from the Psalms, and that continues also in the monastic tradition, that there are certain, uh, Lord, open our lips and our mouth shall proclaim your praise, you know. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. These are these are phrases that you find not just in uh, Christian liturgical prayer, but in Jewish prayer. And so, um, one thing that we do know is that very, very early on, um, the the early Christians started to pray to Jesus and worship Jesus as God. As you know, maybe maybe the doctrine of the Trinity wasn't fully hammered out in the way that it was like a few centuries later. But, um, for example, if you, turn, if you turn to Philippians chapter 2, um, you'll, you'll find in, in cha- uh, chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, um, what's called the Christ hymn. You find something else like that in Colossians chapter 1. Most people think that this was um, an early Christian hymn or an early Christian creed that Christians confessed or prayed about Jesus. Um, we see that also um, very, very early on, Christians began using the Lord's Prayer in a liturgical way. In fact, the, um, the addition that we do at the end where we say, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, that wasn't something that Jesus originally added. The reason why the church thought that was there is because it comes in later manuscripts um, that the church was just like, oh, that was just a way that they finished out that prayer. It wasn't the, exactly the part that Jesus originally taught us, but it actually sounds very Jewish too. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. So we see little bits and pieces of the early Christian liturgy. Um, when Paul talks about the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us, therefore let us keep the festival. These are lines that we're still using. And the earliest full liturgies that we get in the second century, um, that's where much of the church's liturgy today comes from. And we get a pretty good window into what the early church was saying in their homes from, from those liturgies. Yeah. To, to what degree is this a model that we should be seeking to like replicate? And to what extent is it just the very particular thing that existed at that point in time? Yeah. And we're doing, should we you know, learn something from it, but then... Yeah, that's a, that's a good question, Jonathan. So he's asking, to what extent do we sort of just replicate what the church is doing in here, and to what extent is it just something we learn from, um, but we don't do exactly that? Um, I, I want to say um, that the way you phrase the question is a good way to phrase it, um, because um, I don't think that Luke is presenting here like a law. <laughs> you know, this is the way that Christianity has to look. And if you don't, you're just a compromised church that no longer loves Jesus. Um, But at the same time, um, part of the way that Luke um, uh, authors both the Gospel and um, the Book of Acts is um, to make a sort of um, uh, a narrative case, or, or it's almost like a little illustrative snapshot of what was going on there. And it's certainly intended to be a commendable picture. So it's not just something that we read and we say, well, that was then, now how do we follow Jesus today? Um, I, I think Luke does intend us in, intend it to be um, catechetical, instructive for us. 
where we read it and it instructs us about the kinds of things, the kind of priorities that the church should have. I mean, this first line, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's really the unfolding New Testament. So they devoted themselves to the scriptures, um, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread. Almost all scholars, a majority of scholars believe that that's not just talking about this sort of agape feast communal meal that the early church would have. But the breaking of bread was a phrase that was being used here to signify the Lord's Supper. Um, this is my body broken for you. That the early church was already devoting themselves to that and to the prayers. And um, obviously we see many other patterns going on here. And, and uh, it does seem to be that um, 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 Luke wants us to understand them and this early community as sort of heroes as sort of heroes that can instruct us. It doesn't mean that we have to imitate them as a law, as if this is like the equivalent of the Ten Commandments, because it's a narrative, it's not a law. Um, but um, I think if we read this, and it feels incredibly foreign and nothing like what we're doing today, that should sort of call us to be like, wow, um, are we still living out and living the way as a community that Jesus has called us to live? Yeah. yeah. Morning. So I'm a new guy here, so I can maybe go on a limb a little bit. Uh, you may it. never see me again. <laughs> <laughs> Depends on how I answer this question. <laughs> Lots of pressure. So Dial I'll, it up. I'll preface it with that, but just to say I appreciate the dialogue. Yeah. Cool. And, um, so this has been a little bit around my heart, and you know we may be one of the richest, materially richest yeah. societies in all of history, mm-hmm. but maybe also one of the spiritually most impoverished. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is kind of something we can fall back on. But in a society that's designed to be counter to all that, as, as you were saying, you know, mm-hmm. it's kind of anti-dependence. Mm-hmm. Right? We're about in, in, independence. We're yeah. about non-community. We fight against community coming together, generally yep. speaking. Yep. So how can we take these elements and incorporate them into our society and our culture yeah. as it is today? Yeah. And does the modern church as it exists in America have a place in that model? Yeah, I think that's an excellent question because... Um, one of the reasons why that's so difficult for us is because of the history of our nation and because um, many people are sort of lamenting where we're at as a culture today because they say, well, 50 years ago we were a Christian culture, or 150 years ago we were a Christian culture. Now, some people wouldn't agree with that at all. probably depends on uh, whose history you're reading, right? Um, but the thing about the early Christian community is they understood that they were a part of a countercultural movement. So they weren't just sort of, you know, going with the stream. They, they weren't, you know, they knew they couldn't because they were living in the midst of the Roman Empire and at most times they were persecuted. They didn't have power. They understood themselves to be sojourners. Right? They understood themselves to be pilgrims. They understood themselves to be ambassadors from another kingdom. And I really, um, I really believe that's the way that the church is always called to operate, you know? whether we have um, great favor and privilege in a culture or not, you know. And, and oftentimes, as you've, as you've noted, um, with great wealth and with great privilege, oftentimes comes a compromise or a sort of syncretism or a sort of blending with majority culture and their vision for how they want us to practice. You know, we'd prefer if you just said your private devotions and never mentioned Jesus again, you know. We prefer if you didn't take your ethics on things like sexuality or justice or anything like that and really try to advocate for that for anybody but just sort of your own like pious devotional time. We don't want to hear about that, right? We'd prefer if 
you didn't speak up for there being absolute truth when you're in when you're in the uh, college you know lecture class or or whatever you know, and so um, there's always a pressure against us and. And I don't think that that should surprise us. Jesus says, you know, you see what they did to me, right? <laughs> um, that's, that, that's the kind of stuff that's going to happen to you if you're salty, you know, if, if, you, if you live with the aroma of Christ. But Jesus says, um, at the, at, you know, one of, one of the things that I, um, one of the phrases um, that convicts me the most in the Sermon on the Mount, he says the last, the last one of the Beatitudes, he says, blessed are you, um, when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, um, for yours is the kingdom of God. He said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. You know, not because you're lazy or because you're a jerk, but falsely. <laughs> um, um, for my name's sake. He says, um, for the, you know, this is what happened to the prophets who were before you. You know, they lived out of step with an out of step world. And Christians are called to live out of step with the world insofar as the world is out of step. I mean, it's beautiful. If there's ways in which our culture, and, and it is the case, there are ways in which our culture or our government or, or our, you know, schools or whatever um, do glorify God. And we celebrate that. We're not like, I'm going to rebel against you just because, you know. But, but to the extent to which they're out of step with the king of heaven, we say we know where our first allegiance is. And that doesn't mean that it's easy, but it means that as Christians, we might be living in a very individualist society, but we live in a communal way. You know, Jesus, you know, in our gospel reading today, just talked about what do you do when someone sins against you? How do you confront someone in their sin? It's like, whoa, all of a sudden, that's not the way that we live, you know? But we're called to live out this alternate society, this, this you know, as citizens of the kingdom, not citizens of this world. Yeah. And to live as a community. Can you speak to what it means when it says the fellowship? Yeah, they devoted themselves to the fellowship. Um, well, I mean, I think, I think um, in, a, in the most simple way, we can see in this passage, they devoted themselves to being together. You know? They didn't, it wasn't like they just, oh, that, that's the person I see at that meeting one time a week. You know? They devoted themselves to being together. And, um, I just want to say, too, I, I've learned over the years in, in campus ministry and in church ministry that there's really, like, three ways to have a healthy relation, three things that are important to have a healthy um, connection with the Christian community, healthy relationship with the fellowship. The first is um, just to, that you have a healthy relationship with the community at large. And so, you like the community, you know, you like what we do together, you're in, you know, you feel like people generally like you and are happy that you're there, great. You know, you're not just feeling like antithetical or alienated or whatever, you, you, you feel like you're in step with the fellowship. Another thing that's important is to have good relationship with the leaders, um, so you don't feel like every time that guy gets up there, I don't like him, I don't trust him, and I'm not saying that it's, it's going to be easy, especially if you've had somebody sort of burn bridges on trust for you in the past, but your experience of fellowship, your experience of Christian community is going to be really tough if you don't feel like you have some sort of trust for the leadership. But then the third thing, and this might be really the challenging or, or encouraging word um, for, for some of you, is um, you have to have a few friends in the fellowship. Because you're not 
close friends with a hundred people, you know. And you know, some of you guys are close friends of Carissa and myself, but you know, I'm not close friends with everyone here. You know, I, I, I want to have a relationship of trust and friendship, and I, I want there to be a sense that Christ is at work in my relationship with you, but that's just not the way that it works, you know. Um, but if everybody here has two or three or four friends that you're building, and that doesn't happen immediately. It's not like the church is like, oh, welcome to our church. What do you think about these three friends? <laughs> that's just not the way it works, right? Um, you know, you, 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 you come around, you come to missional communities, you come to the newcomers' gatherings, you stick around for meals, you say, I'm not just like punching a clock and coming here to worship on Sunday. But you need two or three or four friends who really know you, and you know them, and when there's tough things going on in your life, maybe the community notices. Or maybe, you know, maybe the pastor's kind of like, hey, what's going on with you today? But maybe they don't. But your friends are going to notice. Yeah. And you really need that. And uh, I, I also just want to say, as, as a side note, it's, I think it's also healthy to have some friends that aren't just in the community, aren't just in your Christian community. It's, it's health, healthy to have some friendships with your neighbors or with non-Christians. You know, Jesus um, spent a lot of time around people that didn't necessarily believe what he believed, and he was building friendships and relationships. And I think that that's important too. But um, part of where we get our sense of identity in Christ reinforced is by those friends who love Jesus and love us. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So there's this sense of authority. And then how does that happen after the era of the apostles, when the apostles die out? Let's back up for a moment just to Acts chapter 1. And look with me at verse 2. Jesus, after his resurrection, he hangs around for 40 days. And he waits to ascend to the right hand of the Father. And it tells us in verse 2, until the day when he was taken up, this is what he was doing after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he has chosen. So Acts is setting up right away this, um, this exchange of authority that's going from Jesus, the Son of God, who was the main character in the Gospel of Luke. Remember, Luke and Acts were bundled together as a unit. So it's flowing from Jesus by the Holy Spirit to the apostles, and then the apostles teach the people... And the peoples devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. Why do they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching? I'll get to um, your second question in a moment, but why do they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching? Well, they knew that the apostles had walked closely with Jesus for 12 years. They were his friends. Jesus called the apostles his friends, right? Um, and so they had walked with Jesus day by day, and uh, that they had the authoritative message of the gospel. And that Jesus had anointed them and had specifically chosen him. Now, it's interesting because um, we didn't preach on the second half of, of Acts 1. The storm came and stuff like that. And we ended up just kind of continuing on in our series. But um, the only leader in the book of Acts that's, a po that, that's um, appointed by the casting of lots happens with Matthias in the second half of Acts chapter 1. And there's a reason for that. 
Because the apostles knew that it wasn't their job to appoint apostles. They could appoint elders. They could appoint deacons. Actually, we see them do that later on. But they say, actually, they pray to the Lord Jesus. Now think about the way that Luke, think about his Christology. Think about his idea of who Jesus is. That these early apostles are praying to him right after he ascends. And they say, you know, this is, this is your choice, Lord. Tell us who you've chosen. They want somebody that's been with them for all those three years. The lot fell to Matthias. Now, later on, when there's a leadership gap and they need to raise up more leaders, the apostles are the ones that are appointing people. But I, I, just, I, just, um, I just bring that up to show that um, there's, a, there's a sense of the apostles' authority that's unrepeatable. Even though in the Anglican Church, we would say that their office, that apostolic office, which is not just the office of like a local pastor like myself or John, that apostolic office which appoints leaders and oversees leaders, which we see the apostles exercising throughout the book of Acts, which we see other apostolic figures in the New Testament like Barnabas and Timothy and Titus exercising authority over local pastors. Paul could write authoritative letters to churches he never visited, Right? And expect that they're going to listen to him. Or he could send a leader to a previous church that he'd been to, and, and they would bring a letter. And, and so it, 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 was, it wasn't just like, oh, we're just this local independent congregation, and our pastor's the pope of our congregation. Mm-hmm. It was one body, and they were connected to each other through these apostolic figures. Now, I, um, I believe that that apostolic office continued. But there are no more apostles proper. Somebody might have that spiritual gift of apostleship, that ability to kind of see the big macro picture, um, but the specific connection with Jesus and the specific appointing directly from Jesus. You know, Timothy was exercising an apostolic office, but he wasn't appointed by Jesus. He was appointed by the apostle Paul. Um, And so, who Jesus also directly chooses. We'll get to that um, later on in the book of Acts. So, um, I, I want to say the apostolic office continues, but there's a sense of unrepeatability to the apostles' role as teachers. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. It's on page 977. Actually, we'll back up to 19. This kind of goes into the question that this other gentleman was asking earlier. He says, um, he's talking to these Gentiles that have been included into the people of God with these early believing Jews. He says, um, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. That's like you're no longer foreigners to the people of God. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now listen to this. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So the household of God, the church, what's our sort of authoritative source of truth? The apostles and the prophets. It's another way of saying the New Testament and the Old Testament, right? And even early on in the New Testament, we see in 1 Peter, like Paul's letters begin to be treated as scripture. And as early as we have back you know, in, into, into um, our record of the early church, they were reading these early apostolic documents along with the Hebrew scriptures when they were gathering together on Sunday. And they would preach a sermon on that. Now, there might be excellent teachers in the church today. There might be wonderful theologians. There might be pastors and you're, you know, you listen to their podcast and that's great. 
but I'm not going to take one of their sermons and bring it here and read it from the podium and then exegete the sermon of some modern-day theologian. Right? That's the difference, is that with the apostles' teaching, it was treated as um, a deposit that came to the church through their association with Jesus and through their anointing of him as leaders, as a trustworthy, authoritative witness to the Christ event. Um, One more question. Yeah, Michael. It's actually like a two-part question. That's fine. So the first one's Sneak for, it in there. <laughs> the first one's for everybody just to kind of think about. Um, do you have more than you need? And if so, why do you hold on to it? Mm -hmm. And the second question was, um, in the footnote, it said another word for all was fear. And how does being in fear... Yeah. Um, first of all, work into the first question, yeah. and secondly, um, uh, coexist with doing God's work. Yeah, that's good. Um, I'm going to answer your second question first, all right? Um, it says, awe came upon every soul. When, why was awe coming on every soul? Because they were seeing miracles happening through the hands of the apostles. And um, so, yeah, there is a sense of fear. There is a sense of awe. Man, if you saw... Um, somebody get physically healed right in front of you, that would be an intense thing to see, right? If you saw a demon cast out of somebody right in front of you, that would be an intense thing to see. If you saw, as the early church had, you know, um, angelic visits, if an angel came into your room, what's the first thing that an angel usually says in Scripture? Do not be afraid. <laughs> Why? Because you're like, ah! <laughs> What are you? <laughs> right. So, um, and there is a sense in Scripture, the New Testament wants to communicate our, that the dynamic of those who trust in Christ between us and God is not, uh, it's not predicated, it's not primarily a dynamic of fear. There can be a sense of confidence in that relationship as the confidence that a child has with a good father, that even if I'm in trouble, I'm still in the house. Um, because of who the Father is and because of what Christ has done for me. So that's really the primary word, but it doesn't change the fact that you're still dealing with God Almighty who spoke the universe into existence. And so there is a sense of awe, there is a sense of fear, there is a sense of wonder, there is a sense of falling on your face as if dead, <laughs> which commonly happens in the presence of God as well. Um, and uh, Michael asked, why do we hold on to our possessions? I think that's a good question. Um, I think sometimes we do it invalidly because of greed or because we just kind of, our hearts have been tied to the things that we have and um, that doesn't honor God. Um, I commend to you a, a wonderful chapter um, for your reflection in the book Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster on simplicity, on the call of Christians to live a simple life. Um, but at the same time, um, uh, there, I, I, it, would take, it would take the rest of the New Testament to make this case, um, but there was never this resolute, um, like, mosaic Ten Commandment kind of law for everybody to sell everything and everybody to give everything that they have to the poor in that sort of way. There's, there, there's instead, and some people did get that call, that, that, that direct call, and people still get that call today, I'm convinced. Um, but there was a call to say, it all belongs to you, Lord. 
So what do you want to do with this stuff? What do you want to do with this big house that I have? Um, maybe you want me to sell it. You know, or maybe you want me to open it up to people. You know, or maybe you want me to open it up to the church. Or maybe, maybe there's some sort of way in which you want to use the fact that I'm in a high-paying job to bless the third world poor or to bless the mission of God. But I think we need to be careful to not be too pragmatic because Jesus says you can't serve both God and money, right? Because there's going to be times in our life, no matter who we are, where Jesus says to go this way and money says to go this way. You know, it's nice when we feel like that we have this deep sense of confirmation that Jesus wants us to take the higher paying job, you know? Um, but there are going to be times when Jesus says to go this way and money says to go this way. And Jesus said, whoever you listen to, you listen to that's your Lord. Um, I said I wanted to say at the end something about how we can apply this to our lives um, let me just say very briefly three things, um, and, and we can elaborate this on this another time. In fact, um, I'll, I'll make an announcement later about a time where I, we can help people to grow in prayer and in their study of the Word. But I want to suggest three practices. One, spend 30 minutes a day in the Word and in prayer on your own. Um, some of us did that early on in our Christian life, but we've gotten away from that. And maybe we're not feeling like super intimate with God. And maybe you got away from it because you're viewing it as a law. And I understand that. But I just want to encourage you to consider returning to that. So spend 30 minutes a day. Some of you guys spend a lot more than that. Great. But just carving out that time and just consecrating your day to the Lord. Number two, um, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. If you go to Acts chapter 20, that phrase is used again for the gathering of Christians on the first day of the week. I want to encourage you guys to be committed to going to church. This is something very easily that can fall off our plate, especially we're living in a very individualistic culture, and it's just like me and my relationship with Jesus, and I can be saved without going to church. Maybe. But I've met some funky people who don't go to church. You know? And, and uh, the people I know who are the deepest and have the aroma of Christ about them in the sweetest way are people who long ago committed to saying, I'm devoted to the breaking of bread. I'm devoted to gathering with believers on Sunday. It says in the book of Hebrews, don't give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Um, and then the third thing is, um, I want to encourage you to commit yourself to a missional community. That's these communities we have at this church that are devoted to fellowship on a deeper level, a place where you can know and be known, and a place where we're studying uh, God's truth in some sort of deeper way, and a place where we're on mission together. And devote yourself to the mission. I mean, if, if you're in the Frenchtown group, and you know Johanna and Chris are a prayer-walking Frenchtown and knocking on people's doors and inviting them to Alpha, then do it with them, you know? If you're, if you're in a group that's like an evangelistic Bible study and you're trying to get, you know, your neighbors and friends, invite your neighbors and friends, you know? If you're, you know, going into the prisons uh, with Kairos, go into the prisons. If, if you're in a mission that has to do with international students, you know, have language par partners. Let internationals live in your house. Um, let's actually be devoted to these things. So just these three things. Spending some time in the Word and prayer every day. Committing yourself to coming to church on a weekly basis. This is just basic stuff, good stuff. And commit yourself to a missional community. And that will give you a context to devote yourself to all the kinds of things that are talked about in this passage. Let me just close with a brief, brief prayer. Father, 
Father, would you sanctify our devotions? Would you sanctify our loves? Lord, would we not pretend that some of our devotions are about you when they become wedded with the world? Lord, I pray that you would give people here um, the, the sense of self-discipline, the desire to meet with you that it would take to, to set aside time every day, to consecrate time for the word and prayer. And uh, Lord, I pray that this would be a church where people would commit themselves to the breaking of bread, commit themselves to gathering um, with the believers, not once a month or twice a month, but Lord, this is just something we do every Sunday on the Lord's Day. Amen. Amen.